Hey everyone, obviously today is very different. I'm on a screen instead of being there in person. So why is it that this is a message via video instead of me being in the room? Well, it's because today I'm right here. I'm in the country of Guinea. It's a country on the coast of West Africa. And uh, I'm on a mission trip with Pastor Otis and a number of other people from our church. And we were at the Compassion Evangelical Hospital. The last time that I was on a mission trip, I was able to film the sermon on location and send that video back to you. Unfortunately, this time I had to record it uh, before I left for the trip. And you might be asking, what are we doing? Why are we on this trip? Well, for those of you who may not know, a number of years ago, this church uh, contributed to the construction of this hospital. The Compassion Evangelical Hospital is a cherished ministry partner of our church. And last year, we were able to fund the construction of an evangelism center and an activity center for children on the campus of the Compassion Evangelical Hospital. And this week, there is a medical conference that is taking place, and a number of the medical professionals and doctors from our congregation are leading and teaching. And i got to tell you, it is a privilege to be a part of it. And it is a privilege to be a part of a church that is so committed to this mission. And I just want to say, for those of you who give financially to Autumn Ridge Church, you are a part of this. Whenever you give to Autumn Ridge Church, even if you are not with me in Guinea right now, you are a part of what's going on here through your financial generosity, through your contributions to our church. When you give to Autumn Ridge, you are giving to this mission. And I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for your partnership in ministry. Well, today we are continuing in our new series, This Is Church. Last week we kicked off this series and we started really with some bad news. There's a lot of noise and there's a lot of negative attention that's being given to churches across America. Today, instead of starting with bad news, I want to start with some good news Scott Sauls is a pastor and an author who I follow. And it wasn't too long ago that he shared this. He said, Christian philanthropy accounted for 70% of all American philanthropy in 2022 at $300 billion total. Christians also outgave the U.S. government in addressing global poverty, and that information comes from the Barna Group. And he goes on to say, whatever folks might say or think, the church remains a seismic value add to the world. Last year, the year before that, and every year going all the way back to when Peter preached that message at Pentecost, the church has been a supernaturally empowered, unstoppable force of love and good in the world. Now, we are not perfect. The truth is we are far from it. We are not impressed with ourselves, and we probably shouldn't be. So how should we think about ourselves? We should think about ourselves the way that Jesus talks about us, the way that Jesus thinks about us. And he said that we are his body. We represent him to the world. And this is more than just a neat idea. And it's even not enough to say that this is important. This is urgent. Being the body of Christ and living out what that means together, it's urgent. Now, for those of you who were here last week when we talked about this, do you remember why this is urgent? The answer to that question is going to be the constant drumbeat throughout the series. This is what we're saying. There is no backup plan. The local church is Jesus' plan A for the world. There is no plan B. There is no backup plan. And so let's be as aware as we possibly can be of what his plan is. Let's be as informed 
as inspired, as in tuned with Jesus as we possibly can be. So together, we can continue to take our next steps into this great thing that he has called us into. Now, throughout this series, this is what we're doing. We're digging into parts of the New Testament book of Ephesians, and it's my hope that you will spend some time on your own reading Ephesians. But today, this is what we're going to read together. Ephesians chapter 4 says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Just real quickly, I want to talk to those of you who are with us today, and and you would say you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're just checking things out. Maybe you have questions that you're trying to get answered. I think today is a great day for you to be with us, and this is why, because you get to see what would it be like if you gave your life to Jesus? What would you be a part of? What what would the experience be like if you decided that you wanted to join the body of Christ? Now, for the rest of us, for those of us who say, Rick, I am a follower of Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to lean in. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus has not given to us the option of simply attending. We are his body and we have a mission. Did you know? Did you know that we are counting on you? Did you know that we are incomplete without you? I want to look at this again, part of what we just read. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Hey, it's been this way from the beginning. The local church has always had people who occupied positions of leadership. That continues to be true today. Our local church, we have positions of leadership. And some of those positions of leadership include being an elder, a pastor, a staff member, a small group leader, a ministry team leader, volunteering in, in kids' ministry. The list goes on and on and on. Now, some not all, but some of the positions of leadership that we have, they require so much time, they require so much energy that we pay folks so that they can commit undistracted attention to it. But the overwhelming number of positions of leadership that we have in our local church, they are volunteer-led. And anyone who occupies, anyone who occupies a position of leadership, this is your number one responsibility. The number one responsibility of anybody who occupies a position of leadership is to invest in and equip the rest of the members of the body for the work of ministry. We are his body. That is our identity. And he has given us a mission. No one is a spectator. No one is a spectator. If you are a part of the body of Christ, if you have given your allegiance to Jesus, you have mission-critical responsibility. I hope you remember me saying this before. Not everyone is going to get to occupy the position of leadership in a local church, but every single one of us, each one of us, should have a disposition for leadership. And when we talk about leadership, we're talking about responsibility. We're talking about saying, yes, I am for that. I will take responsibility for this incredible, great mission that Jesus has given to us. As a matter of fact, our church has committed to talk about it this way. Leadership is a destination of discipleship. Following Jesus always leads to leadership. 
Because following Jesus always leads us to take responsibility for this mission that he has placed in our hands, this mission that he has called us to. So what happens? What does it look like when a church decides to take this seriously? Continuing in Ephesians 4, well, then we will no longer be infants. We won't be tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Here it is. Our maturity, our growth, our unity, our discipleship, it's not the responsibility of one person. Our growth, our maturity, our discipleship, it's, it's not the responsibility of a few people. Our ability to grow and mature, to stand fast, to be able to spot the difference between truth and lies, it requires all of us. He continues, instead, we're speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined together, held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And sometimes when I, I read stuff like this, I find myself wondering, what would it be like if I could go back in time? What would it be like to, to be a part of a church like this? And I, and I just find myself wondering, what was it like, really? I don't know, but maybe one of the reasons, maybe one of the reasons that I'm so drawn to study the church at Ephesus is because the New Testament gives us so many snapshots into different stages of this church's life. I don't know if you've ever thought about it or broken it down like this before, but when we talk about the church at Ephesus, when you read Acts 19, it tells us about the start and the early years of the church. We're digging into Ephesians. That's ongoing teaching for this church. The New Testament books of First and Second Timothy, that's encouragement to that church's pastor and more teaching for that church. And then Revelation chapter 2, it is a message to the next generation of this church. And if you were to go and read any of this material, this is what you would discover, is that there are incredible, radical stories of profound life change. If you were to go back and read in Acts chapter 19, you would find radical, profound stories of life change as people. There are, there are people who are professional sorcerers who turn their back on that worldview, turn their back on that lifestyle, and instead turn to Jesus. And when they did, and there was a number of them. They all got together and they burned all the scrolls that they had collected over their career about being a professional sorcerer. And when they did that, the church at Ephesus calculated how much those scrolls that were burned, how much they were worth. And this is what they estimated. They said it was worth 50,000 drachmas. I don't expect you to know how much that is. But it was the equivalent of 136 years of a person's salary or wages, 136 years worth of salaries. Now, I know you didn't expect to do math when you came to church today. I want you to think about your annual salary. Take a minute, think about your annual salary. Multiply that by 136. And the people who gave their life to Christ and helped establish this early church at Ephesus, they said, what Jesus gives to me is worth far more than that. I find myself really drawn to this too, in Revelation chapter 2, because I want to know, how did they do? Were they successful in passing on their faith to the next generation of the church? So let's, let's read this together. In the New Testament book of Revelation, it was written probably about 30 years after the book of Ephesians. And so what we're about to read, this is Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus 
30 years later. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. This church is smart. They know their theology. They know their, their doctrine. And they are committed to holiness. And let's not forget, this church probably has some former sorcerers on its elder board. They could spot a fake a mile away. They can spot a false teacher a mile away. It continues in Revelation 2. You have persevered and you've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This church is tough. They're strong. This church has guts. They have courage. This sounds like an awesome church. Who would not want to be a part of this church? Yet I hold this against you. Did you see that coming? Now, could you imagine Jesus issuing a message to our church? saying we've got a problem here. I am holding something against you. But what was that? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. This is a reality check moment. So let's don't let this pass too quickly. A church can love important things while not loving the most important thing. Did you know that? A church can love important things while not loving the most important thing. What does it mean that they had forsaken their love? What did they lose love for? Well, we know they didn't lose love for being right. They didn't lose love for theology or doctrine. They didn't lose any love for Bible study. George Ladd was a beloved New Testament scholar, commentator, professor. This is what he has to say. He said, the Ephesian converts had known such a love in their early years, but their struggle with false teachers and their hatred of heretical teaching had apparently engendered hard feelings, had engendered hard feelings and harsh attitudes towards one another to such an extent that it had mounted to forsaking of the supreme Christian virtue of love. This is a church with a high IQ, but a low EQ. This church was smart but they scored low on the emotional quotient. This is a church that we're discovering for all that it had going for it. It was very, very unhealthy relationally. So let's talk about the reality of what forsaking a first love can look like in a church. It's possible to grow in love for theology while losing love for God. It's possible to grow in love for the Bible while losing love for Jesus. It's possible to grow in love for truth while losing love for the one who is truth. It's possible to grow in love for the traditions, culture, and the practices of church while losing love for the one who is the head of the church. But there's more to what this means. It's possible to grow in love for theology while losing love for people. It's possible to grow in love for the Bible while losing love for people. 
It's possible to grow in love for the truth while, you, while losing love for people. It's possible to grow in love for the traditions, the culture, and the practices of church while losing love for people in the church. If we're going to be people who really live out what it means to take truth seriously, this is what that means. We've got to have an eyes wide open look at what Jesus had to say. We've got to have an eyes wide open look at what the apostles had to say and what they wrote for us in the New Testament. And if we take that seriously, it means we are going to come to this conclusion. Maturity isn't measured by how much we know, but by how well we love. And the message to the church at Ephesus was repent and do the things you did at first. Return to the one who is your head. Return to Jesus. Reconnect with him. That's the first thing you got to do. Do you remember what it means that Jesus is the head over the church? We covered this last week. This is what that means. Jesus has head over the church. Jesus is the source of our new life. He's the source of our new status. He's the source of our love, of our unity, and our purpose. The love that we need and the love that should flow in our church, it doesn't come by looking within. It comes by turning to him, by looking to him. He is the source. He is the one who fills us with it. And as the head, he is the one who gets to define what love means. And he is the one who gets to define what love requires of us. Now, when we talk about the subject of love, there are lots of things that we could talk about. But what I want to do for the next couple of minutes is I want to talk about the things. I want to talk about the one thing that Jesus inspired the Apostle Paul to write about for this church. And it appears to be, it appears to be the thing that this church forgot. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I am not there with you in the room right now, but I think it's a pretty safe bet that nobody stood up and started applauding. I have never met anyone who is excited about being submissive. As a matter of fact, most people that I know are really good at coming up with excuses on why we don't have to do this. When he was a little guy, I bought uh, some tickets to... Uh, a demolition derby for my son Jack and I to go to. You know what a demolition derby is, right? It's when cars are driving around crashing in uh, to each other. He was a little guy. I want to show you a picture of what he was at this age. This is what he looked like. This is one of my favorite pictures of, of Jack. Now, uh, when he finds out that I use this picture today, he is probably going to kill me. It's probably a good thing that I'm out of the country. Well, what could be more fun? For a, for a little boy like this than to go and watch a bunch of cars uh, smash into each other. Now, the problem is, is that I was trying to describe it to Jack, but I just wasn't able to describe it in such a way that he could imagine the concept of a demolition derby. Now, it was held in a stadium at our local county fair. And there we are, we're in the stadium, and Jack is sitting on my lap, and he's crying, and he's squirming, and he's doing everything and his little power to let me know he doesn't want to be there. Where does he want to be? He wants to go look at the animals. He wants to go ride the rides at the fair. Now, I communicate for a living, and I did not possess the ability to describe a demolition derby in such a way that my son wanted to be there. But I'm his dad, and I know my boy, and I know that when this thing starts, he is going to love it more than anything he would have picked for himself. 
And sure enough, when the cars came out and the dust started flying and the cars smashed into each other over and over and over again, my son was transfixed. And he just didn't possess the vocabulary at that, at that young age as a little guy uh, to be able to express his excitement. So he would just ball his little fists up in the air and he would roar, ah, because he was so excited. Can I say this? We can trust Jesus. We can trust the one who is our head, that he has a way of being for us that is far better far better than anything we would pick for ourselves. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This right here, this is the way of peace. This is the way of reconciliation. This is the way to intimacy. This is the way of joy. This is the way to honor dignity. This is the way into patience and gentleness and kindness. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the way into being a new humanity in him. This is the way right here. This is the way to extend healing to folks who have broken trust. This is the way to extend healing to folks who have church wounds. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the cross. Last week, I, I gave you a way to visualize church, and this is, this is what we use. The, the big circle represents a local church, and inside of any local church, inside of every local church, there are distinct and different individuals. There are distinct and, and different groups. But as our eyes, as the eyes of our hearts are enlightened into all that Jesus has given to us, into all that Jesus has called us into, all the things that make us distinct and different, they may not disappear, they may not go away, but they move to the background. And we begin to experience what it is to be one in Christ, and it starts to look like this. And experiencing this, this cannot happen without Jesus' power. But this won't happen without our participation. We have responsibility for it. And yet, any church, any local church could lose this. And it appears that the church at Ephesus lost this. And instead of having this, instead of really experiencing what it means to be a new humanity in Christ and experiencing oneness in him, it began to look like this. And when a church forgets what it is that makes it one, and it can easily revert back to fighting for and fighting about what makes them different. And the way that that looks is that one group raises the flag for their agenda. One group raises the flag for, for their issue and, and they begin to advocate for and fight for and fight about their thing. And then another group does the same. They raise the flag for their issue, their, their thing, their agenda, and they begin to fight for and advocate for whatever that is. And they can even fight against each other. This is the disease. So what's the cure? 
How does a, how does a church move out of that? If a church ever found themselves here, what's the solution? Well, in a word, it's submission. And this is what that looks like. This is submission. We place ourselves at the bottom. We say, you above me. I'm going to place myself beneath you, and I'm going to place, I'm going to place you above myself. I'm going to place your agenda above my agenda. I'm going to place what you need above what I need. I'm going to place what you want above what I want. And it's not just individuals who do that. Groups should come together and do that too. I'm going to place your group above my group. My group's going to be at the bottom. Your group's agenda can be at the top. We're going to submit ourselves. We're going to place ourselves beneath what your group needs. We're going to place ourselves beneath what your group wants. Some of you guys might be looking at this and says, Rick, that seems a little out of kilter. Why is it that one circle is bigger than the other? Because this is something I'm trying to illustrate. It is stunning. It is never more stunning. It is never more compelling than when those who have more submit and place themselves beneath those who have less. It's never more stunning. And it's never more compelling than the group that has, has more power, has more clout, has more resources, has more advantages, when they happily place themselves beneath the group that has less. It's submission. It's the way of Jesus. And I think one of the reasons, maybe the main reason, that there's a lot of noise surrounding churches in America today, the reason that there's a lot of hurt and the reason that there's a lot of negative attention about churches in America today is because the body of Christ has forgotten this, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This weekend, a lot of people, maybe even you, this weekend a lot of people are thinking about the leadership and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I've found my own thoughts drifting back to what he had to say about the reality of a divided church in America. I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours in Christian America. Uh, I definitely think the Christian church should be integrated, and any church that uh, stands against integration and that has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ, and it fails to be a true witness. Uh, but this is something that the church will have to do itself. I don't think church integration will come through uh, legal processes. I might say that my church is not a segregating church. It's segregated, but not segregating. It would welcome white members. I don't want to put myself in a position to expound on the history of racism and its impact on our country or our churches. I, I, I'm not qualified to do that. I do think I'm just qualified to be able to recognize and acknowledge this. What Dr. Martin Luther King was talking about was this right here. And whenever the body of Christ forgets what makes them one, it's so easy to revert back to fighting for and fighting about all the things that make us different. And wherever this is a reality in the body of Christ, there is no submission. Instead, all we are left with is subjugation 
and segregation. It could be about race. It could be about anything under the sun. But when the body of Christ is not united, when the body of Christ is divided, the solution is always the same. Repent and do the things you did at first. Return to Jesus, the head of our church, the source of our love, the one who defines what it means to love, and the one who has the right to tell us what love requires of us. And it always, it always requires this. Out of reverence for him, submission to one another. These are some of the ways, some of the ways that submission is expressed by individuals and by groups and any local church and our local church. It's saying, you know what, I, I defer to your leadership. Saying, I defer to your wisdom. It's choosing to defer to somebody else's perspective. It's choosing to defer to somebody else's experience. It's choosing to defer to somebody else's needs. It's choosing to defer to somebody else's wants. It's choosing to defer to somebody else's or another group's strength. It's, easy, it's even choosing to defer to somebody else's or another group's weaknesses. And it's saying, you know what? I'm going to leverage my strength to come underneath you and to serve you and to serve your well-being. It's saying, I'm going to move at your pace. And that could mean, you know what, I'm going to slow down so it's easy for you to keep up. Or it's I'm going to speed up so that I can keep up with you so you don't have to slow down. Both of those things are expressions of submission. It's even saying, you know what, to an individual or to a group, whether they are the larger group or the smaller group, saying, I'm going to defer to your culture. The only way that we can be the beautiful mosaic that Jesus intended us to do the only way that we could be the beautiful mosaic that Jesus intended for us to be, to be the church that he called us to be, to be a church of all cultures, is for no group to demand their way, but joyfully, happily, willingly submit to and defer to the culture of others. A few minutes ago, we started off by talking about leadership as a destination of discipleship. Not every person in a local church is going to occupy a position of leadership, but every single one of us should have a disposition of leadership. I'm saying let's flip this thing upside down. Let's be upside down leaders. Let's place ourselves on the bottom and place everyone else above ourselves. Let's be people out of reverence for Christ who embrace submission and we place the agendas and the needs and the wants of others above ourselves. Let's be people who lead upside down. That's what submission is. There is no downside to being an upside down leader. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the cross. Now this is the question that I have. What would happen what could happen in our local church? What could happen with us if we were resolved to look like Jesus? What could happen with us? What could happen in our local church if we were resolved to love like Jesus? I want to end 
by reading to you something else that the Apostle Paul wrote to another church. This is Philippians chapter 2. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you know every time that we die to ourselves, every time that we say no to ourselves and instead we opt to place ourselves beneath the needs and the well-being of someone else, we are living out the story of the gospel. Every time we choose to be upside down leaders, every time we choose submission, every time we choose to say it's you above me, we are painting the drama of the gospel on the canvas of our submission. This is the way of Jesus. May we be like him.